Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hey everyone, if you like this podcast, go behind the paywall to get privileged access to the smartest minds in finance. Join the Real Vision community and learn how to become a better investor. Visit realvision.com slash rvpod and use the promo code podcast10, that's podcast10, to get 10% off our essential membership for the first year. Now, to the top analysis of today's crypto markets. The SEC makes sweeping claims on crypto in its charges against Terra and Duquan, and more questions for Binance after a report it had secret access to its U.S. counterpart. Welcome to Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. I'm Ash Bennington. I'm joined today by Jake Chervinsky from the Blockchain Association. Welcome to the show, Jake. Thanks, Ash. Glad to be here. It's a pleasure to have you. Jake has his pulse on the finger in his finger on the pulse in Washington. We're going to discuss regulation in depth very shortly, but first, let's take a look at our latest price analysis. The red hot Bitcoin rally has finally cooled after notching a 10% gain in 24 hours and hitting a monthly multi-month high of 25,100. Bitcoin is trading nearly 4% lower today. The current price is hovering around $24,000. Ether is also shedding some of its gain. It hit $1,730 on Thursday, the highest price since September. Ether is changing hands right now at around $1,670. Coindesk says the upcoming Shanghai upgrade could bring some price volatility for Ethereum. The upgrade is expected to take place in the next month. The final token we're looking at today is Filecoin, the currency of the decentralized storage network. It's the strongest performer for the past 24 hours. It's up more than 30%. That's after an announcement of a major upgrade coming on March 1 on the Filecoin network. Filecoin will add smart contracts to its blockchain, obviously uh, an anticipated bit of functionality there. Okay, viewers, join us in your in this conversation. Put down your questions in the chat wherever you're watching. We'll ask the best ones on the air later in this show. Remember, Real Vision members take priority, but the good news is that Real Vision membership is free. With that said, let's bring in Jake. He's the Chief Policy Officer at the Blockchain Association, which represents the crypto industry interests in Washington. Jake, welcome to the show. Thanks so much. Really glad to be here. Hey, Jake, tell us first what you guys do, who you represent, the type of work uh, that you guys focus on. Yeah, absolutely. So I work at the Blockchain Association. We are the U.S. crypto industry's largest trade association in Washington, D.C. So we represent the interests of our members, which span the entire crypto industry. Um, we have you know, early stage investors. We have software development companies, infrastructure providers, exchanges, custodians, market makers. You know, Basically, every sector of the crypto industry is represented within our membership. And also all of the exciting things that are happening in crypto from DeFi to NFTs layer ones, layer twos, basically everything. And the mission of the Blockchain Association is to promote a pro-innovation public policy environment in the U.S. so that crypto can flourish here, right? So that our companies can set up, you know, good businesses, 
create jobs, pay their taxes, and also make sure that those benefits of decentralized networks are available to all Americans. So that's who we are. Um, mostly what we focus on is working with policymakers, largely in the U.S. federal government. So members of Congress and their staff, the regulators, uh, you know, sometimes we're active in the courts as well, trying to push policy forward to benefit crypto. So that's what we're up to. So Jake, uh, we love innovation and crypto here. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the news flow here because obviously it's been a big day. Uh, the US Securities and Exchange Commission has charged Terraform Labs and its co-founder, Du Quan, with perpetrating a fraud to the tune of some 40 billion US dollars. The SEC says the losses for investors were, quote, devastating. Uh, but what's inside the civil complaint is actually much more notable. As the defiant points out, the SEC alleges Terra offered, quote, an array of interrelated tokens which the U.S. regulator deems to be unregistered securities. That includes the following. Luna, which was Terra's governance token, the so-called algorithmic stablecoin UST, the M assets, which were security-based swaps designed to pay returns by mirroring the price of stocks of U.S. companies. That M assets, of course, stands for mirror assets. Uh, the Defiant showcased an interesting tweet from Gabriel Shapiro. He's the general counsel at Real Vision Pro Crypto's partner, Delphi Digital. Shapiro says the case has three firsts. It states that a stablecoin, a tokenized or synthetic token, and wrapped tokens are all securities. Uh, therefore, obviously, very big news, a broad claim, uh, at least if we're reading literally the language of the SEC press release uh, and the SEC complaint. Jake, obviously, this is an interesting story here today. What do you make of this big picture? What does it mean? Yeah, well, there's there's two pieces to this, and and the first piece shouldn't surprise anyone that Doquan and uh, you know Terraform Labs, the creator of the Terra USD uh, token, are being investigated and now are the target of an of a complaint by the Securities and Exchange Commission. The collapse of the Terra algorithmic stablecoin last year was one of the biggest pieces of news of the year. It was a, a catastrophic right. event uh, that caused damage to a lot of retail investors, and so it's not surprising to see right. enforcement action come in that context. I no think what is surprising no surprise there, right? And and in a way, um, it's it's a little bit disappointing that the SEC tends to be a financial archaeologist, right? Much more than the cop on the beat that they're supposed to be. They sort of wait for things to go wrong, and then they show up. Now it's what nine months later, uh, after Terra had already collapsed, to you know assert these allegations when when it really can't help anyone. But that's what the SEC does. So that's that's not a surprise. The piece of it that is a bit surprising is exactly what Gabriel uh, pointed out, which is the SEC's ongoing pattern of regulation by enforcement. It is not clear and was not clear, you know, at the time that, uh, that, that Terra was created or when it collapsed, that these assets are securities. The SEC never gave guidance on this issue. They never did rulemaking on this issue. Instead, they show up to assert for the first time their new views on the law in a federal complaint that the public has no opportunity to argue against, right? And, and especially okay, in this let me just jump in here and, and, and explain a little bit about this, because this is a very common complaint that you hear, uh, particularly in crypto circles, that the SEC is, is, leg, is basically regulating by enforcement. It seems to me that the core challenge here is that we have securities laws in this country uh, that are 90 years old, the Securities Act, Securities Exchange Act, 1933, 1934, vintage uh, legislation. And then what happens, and this is just the way the country works, this is the way the architecture gets hammered out, you effectively have 
SEC, which files civil complaints, makes charges against companies, entities that are issuing securities, and then they get uh, regular, then they get litigated uh, in the federal courts. And so that's the dynamic. And the challenge here, ultimately, it seems, uh, is a failure of Congress to create legislation to attempt to foster, incubate, uh, and support these new technologies. I mean, that's that's really the root cause. And in a certain sense, where we are with SEC uh, happens kind of further down the line, further down the, the chain on that problem. But the, the core problem that we have here is we have 90-year-old securities laws in this country, uh, and we just don't have, it seems, any will in the Congress of the United States right now to figure out a solution. So you effectively have SEC trying to retrofit these 90-year-old laws, trying to establish what they view as important investor protections uh, on top of this. And then it goes to the federal courts uh, where people can dispute these claims. That's the that's the basic system that we have right now. Or, or have I framed that uh, differently than you would? I, I, no, you've said that very well, and I completely agree. I, I, the problem that we have, as you said, is we have this body of law that was created many decades before the digital era, and you have the Securities and Exchange Commission without any additional input from Congress trying to adapt those old laws to an extremely new technology where the right. requirements of the securities laws just don't make sense in this new digital environment. Now, there is a middle ground between Congress you know, having to pass new legislation legislation, which we can discuss. It's a very difficult thing to do and probably not something we should expect to happen in the next couple of years. And what we see now from the SEC, which is this, this pattern of regulation by enforcement, the SEC could engage in a collaborative discussion with the industry to talk about what would make sense, what types of new regulations might we want where we can address those valid regulatory concerns that the securities laws have, while not throwing the entire benefits of this new technology out the window. Right. And the SEC has just you know, shown itself unwilling to do that. Right. So, so Jake, give us a sense of what that might look like. What might that collaborative process look like? How might it, on the one hand, protect investors, and on the other hand, uh, preserve the uh, innovation and the integrity of these technologies uh, that those of us who are in the space seem to be so excited about right now? The problem that we have is the securities laws are really a binary system. Either an asset is a security and the full force of the securities laws have to apply, or it's not a security and it's totally unregulated, at least by the SEC. And the problem is there needs to be a middle path for digital assets. It is impossible for a digital asset to comply with the traditional requirements of the securities laws because at their core, they mandate intermediation. Like the whole framework of the securities laws says these assets can only be issued by, handled by, transferred through, or stored with qualified, registered, centralized entities. And that just doesn't work for assets that we all want to move around in self-custody, in a peer-to-peer -peer way, in a decentralized environment. And so what we need to do is have a conversation with decision makers over at the SEC. You know, people like Commissioner Hester Peirce have made proposals that would make a lot more sense for crypto in her token safe harbor. And what we should be doing is having those types of conversations about Jake, what Jake, Commissioner Peirce has been on uh, this show or been here on Real Vision uh, with us before. Give us a bit of a framework for those of us uh, who don't follow this as closely as you do, is what a safe harbor might look like as expressed by uh, Commissioner Peirce, or in your view, a different alternative model uh, that might give us some additional safe harbor provisions while in sort of enabling those uh, to the technology to grow while still protecting investors. Sure. So the idea that Commissioner Peirce put forward is 
tailored requirements specific to digital assets, where if you want to issue a digital asset, you can put that out into the world and you don't have to comply with some of the more onerous obligations of public auditing and making sure that those securities only move through registered entities and things like that. But you would still have to make disclosures that are relevant to investors who might be purchasing that asset on a secondary market who want to understand things like, what does your roadmap look like? Do you have the funds that you need to you know, finish work doing the work that you've promised to do? What is the nature of the technology that you've built? Right? These sort of important pieces of information that I think everyone agrees would be great to disclose. And, and what that would do is create this sort of middle path where digital assets could comply with the securities laws. We would address the core concern of the securities laws, which is information asymmetry between the creator of the asset and the purchaser of the asset, but we wouldn't ban the entire technology by applying this uh, requirement of central intermediation that the traditional securities laws require. How do you think we would get to that kind of interim or uh, sort of compromise solution? Is there a path that you see where that reasonably could be an expectation of actually executing it? Under current leadership, I don't. And, and this is unfortunate to say because I think this is what the industry has wanted for a long time. The industry wants to comply and they want clarity as to how they can do that in a way that doesn't destroy the, the businesses and the assets that they're trying to create. Uh, Chair Gensler uh, doesn't share that view. It, it seems that his view is the SEC should regulate crypto exactly as it exists. And if the result of that is it destroys the industry in the United States, um, that seems to be something he's he's willing to uh, to do. And the SEC, like most uh, agencies of its nature, is a chair-run organization. Uh, Chair Gensler really is the, the law of the land over there. And if he says this isn't going to happen, then it's not going to happen. And I think until we see a change in leadership, we're going to be stuck in this situation of fighting regulation by enforcement and then rules that are proposed that are similarly unworkable for the crypto industry, like this SEC custody rule that was proposed just two days ago. Uh, let me ask you this question uh, in terms of just the overall sort of overarching framework for how things work at SEC, because uh, I know this is something we've talked about here on the show before. So SEC is an autonomous organization. Uh, it's appointed, the chair is appointed by the president of the United States. I know that there's been some question and speculation in past administrations about uh, this question of whether or not a president can fire an SEC chair. Uh, it seems as though the law implies uh, that he cannot. It is autonomous. But I think historically, the precedent has been if the president asks for your resignation, uh, the SEC chair generally complies and does, in fact, resign. Uh, this is kind of just the, the background to this broader question is, uh, to what extent does <clears throat> excuse me what we're seeing from SEC represent the Biden administration's uh, desired policy toward cryptocurrency? Is that something that we can ascertain from the outside, uh, or is there just not enough transparency to know? It's a great question. I, I can only speculate, and and I think you know all we have to go on are the public statements that we've seen come out of out of the White House, um, and also specifically out of the the NEC. Um, the National Economic Council. And uh, from what I've seen and from you know what I can sort of glean from conversations I've had, I don't think that it's a top-down strategy by the Biden administration to attack the crypto industry. I think if, if you were to get the president in a room and ask him you know, how much he knows or has heard about crypto, probably the answer is, is very little. This is not a top priority at the White House at a time when 
Uh, Vladimir Putin is waging war on Ukraine and the global economy, as, as you know, Real Vision covers extremely well, right. is, uh, you know, facing a lot of challenges. Crypto but it's important to point out that this isn't necessarily the, you know, the view of the president per se, but rather the view of the administration. Uh, you mentioned uh, NEC, uh, National Economic Council, Council on Economic Advisors, the Secretary of Treasury. Uh, these uh, folks serve directly uh, at the uh, at the pleasure of the president. They can be fired at any time, uh, whereas the SEC chair, much more autonomous in terms of uh, in terms of his or her uh, ability to uh, make policy uh, in terms of the regulation and enforcement of securities laws here in the United States. Uh, but it is it is a sort of an open question if there was will from the White House uh, to want to uh, find a mechanism uh, to, um, you know, to 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 embrace this technology, this industry more broadly. Uh, could someone there simply pick up the phone uh, and, and suggest uh, that perhaps uh, a compromise agreement is the one that you articulated earlier, for example. We just don't. Uh, well, know yes, I, I mean, certainly, yes, I, I agree with that. Um, maybe a, a couple thoughts on that. Um, the first is these are independent agencies, and it is hard for the president or you know other folks in the White House to call up Gary Gensler and tell him what to do. In fact, I, I think they're very careful about not doing that, mm. even to avoid the appearance of impropriety. That said. Gary Gensler and his staff are reading the statements that are coming out of the NEC. They're having conversations, of course, with the administration and also with other people, members of Congress, for example, who are close with the administration. So there is a lot of discussion about this, I'm sure, uh, you know, behind the scenes in government. I and, think and, and, that's, seeing... and just to be clear, that's that's permitted. In other words, uh, SEC um, staffers can have conversations with members of Congress about uh, you know, what their feelings are. Obviously, they're the ones uh, creating the law. So those are conversations that do typically happen during uh, any administration. That's correct? Absolutely. And that's how it should be, right? The SEC shouldn't operate in a vacuum. They should hear from elected officials who represent the interests of the public. So I, I think that is is how it should be. Um, it's just difficult for them to, to sort of tell the SEC what to do. However, right. I, think, I think you're absolutely right that if the NEC were to have put out a statement saying, uh, we need to support innovation in the Web3 world in the United States. Uh, and, you know, the most important thing to do is for uh, us to figure out an appropriate tailored regulatory regime for digital assets that trade on secondary markets. Well, we wouldn't be seeing what we're seeing from the SEC, right? If we got those directions, I think things would look a lot better than they do. I would right. describe the White House's message more as uh, gentle neglect than anything else. Um, the NEC's statement, which they did put out just a couple weeks ago, basically said, we have to make sure that crypto is not a systemic risk to the banking system. Uh, right. And both the SEC and the banking regulators have been very active in trying to cut crypto out of the banking system. So that's really the message that we're getting from the NEC. It's not destroy the entire industry. It's wall crypto off from the things that really matter to make sure that it doesn't cause any damage if something happens again, like Terra or FTX or something of that nature. Yeah, and to your earlier point, this may simply just not be a priority of the White House. Talking of which, uh, other issues that could have systemic risk, at least within the crypto industry, I wanted to touch on this story because it's a large one today. Uh, in an exclusive report from Reuters, crypto exchange Binance, according to Reuters reporting, uh, had secret access to accounts of its purportedly independent partner, uh, Binance US. Reuters in 20 says, in 2021, Binance transferred some $400 million from Binance's, Binance U.S.'s account at Silvergate Capital to the trading firm Merit Peak Trading, which is managed by Binance CEO Chengpen Zhao, better known, of course, as CZ. Reuters says it was unable to determine the reason behind the transfer or whether any of the money being transferred was Binance U.S. customer funds. 
A Binance U.S. spokesperson told Reuters its reporting used, quote, outdated information, close quote. Earlier this week, Binance's chief strategy officer admitted to the Wall Street Journal the company expects to pay fines from regulators for past conduct. Jake, what's your take on this story and on Binance more broadly? Now, every situation is unique, of course, and we don't want to imply any sort of uh, extraneous parallels here, but we have heard something like this before, uh, the idea of an exchange uh, having interactions uh, that were secret with an, an, another trading entity, and it did not end well. Uh, it's a great question. I, and of course, I don't know if this report is true, so I don't want to speculate too much on, right. on this transaction specifically or the again, relationship. Again, this between... is coming from Reuters reporting, and there is not any official confirmation. This is not a regulatory statement. Uh, but either way, I, look, I think this is an important issue and and one that should be, uh, you know, should be uh, investigated more, uh, more thoroughly. There's always been um, this strategy among some uh, players in the crypto industry to set up different entities in different jurisdictions that comply with their local law. And that's what Binance has done here, right? Binance says Binance US is the entity that serves US customers. It complies with US law. Binance International does not serve US customers. It complies with the laws in the jurisdictions where it does operate. I think conceptually, there's nothing wrong with having a, you know, a corporate structure along those lines. In fact, I think that's exactly what the law demands. If you want to do business in a given jurisdiction, you have to find out what the laws are for that jurisdiction and then comply with them. I think the problem has been, broadly speaking, uh, that this type of strategy has been used as a facade or as a sham to cover up what is actually mm. a strategy of regulatory arbitrage, where in fact there is some uh, improper connection between those entities or where Jake, in fact this, the this sounds like more than it based on the Reuters reporting this sounds like more than regulatory arbitrage again let me just let me just read directly from the report here global cryptocurrency exchange Binance had secret access to a bank account belonging to its purportedly independent U.S. partner and transferred large sums of money from the account to a trading firm managed by Binance CEO Cheng Pen Zhao banking records and company messages show over the first three months of 2021 more than 400 million dollars flowed from the Binance U.S. account at California-based Silvergate Bank to its trading firm Merit Peak Limited, according to records for the quarter, which were reviewed by Reuters. The Binance U.S. accounts was registered under the name BAM Trading, the U.S. exchange's operating entity, according to the records. Company messages show the transfers to Merit Peak began in late 2020. So this is the allegation, at least uh, as it's being reported uh, from Reuters, which, uh, you know, based on my reading of it, which is imperfect, of course, uh, it sounds like more than a simply a regulatory arbitrage play. No, I think that's right. And, and I get, that's sort of where I was going is the question is, uh, is there an improper connection between these entities or are they properly being operated at arm's length as independent organizations, you know, following the laws of the local jurisdiction? If that report is true, I think it casts doubt on the idea that Binance US is an independent entity that should not be, you know, subject to um, additional scrutiny or additional regulation or enforcement based on that conceptually appropriate structure. So I, you know, I'm sure that this is something that we'll get to the bottom of over time. Yeah, and, and, and the Reuters article actually comes right out and says, uh, Reuters couldn't determine the reason for the transfer or whether any of the money belonged to U.S. customers. So again, it's an open question, but those are the questions at least being raised by this Reuters repeat uh, report. Interesting. Yeah, I, I think uh, after the FTX saga, when mainstream media did, uh, I think, quite a poor job of reporting, you know, accurate facts, uh, I tend to take these reports with a, a bit of a grain of salt. That said, Binance is not a member of the Blockchain Association. I'm not here to defend them. So I, I certainly agree with you that that's a troubling report and, and something we should watch.
Hey everyone, we're going to take a quick pause and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Jake, let me just go through some other stories uh, that are crossing our desks here at Real Vision today. Decrypt reports that Starbucks NFTs are gaining traction. The program is called Starbucks Odyssey, and it runs on the Polygon network. That's a layer two uh, network for Ethereum, of course. Even though it's still in a closed beta phase, the NFTs have managed to achieve a floor price of $2,000, that despite very restricted access and only four NFT drops. I guess you could argue this either way, uh, that perhaps the uh, the restricted access is the cause uh, of prices being higher, or you could argue, I suppose, uh, the opposite, which is the uh, restrictions uh, imply some broader demand, but that's an open question. Uh, Japanese tech giant Sony is getting deeper into Web3. Sony has partnered with blockchain innovation hub Aster Network. The two launched a Web3 incubation program. The aim is to find new, innovative Web3 solutions and turn them into viable products. And finally, staying in Japan, the country has announced it will launch a digital yen trial in April. Japan is the latest country to test a CBDC. That's, of course, a central bank digital currency. The Atlantic Council says 114 company countries are exploring CBDCs right now. Uh, I guess with a number that high, 114, you have to wonder uh, just how much uh, effort in terms of development that's being uh, taken into account, or is it just simply like we've written a white paper, we have a three-page uh, statement of intent or something? Yeah. Uh, well, look, I, I think all of this um, is overwhelmingly good news. Uh, to me, this is just more evidence that crypto is here for good. I, I think a lot of people in the wake of the FTX collapse and the you know market turmoil throughout 2022 have started asking the question, is crypto really going to stick around? Or was this just a speculative bubble that's going to collapse and none of us will be talking about Web3 a couple of years from now? And I think, you know, certainly those first two stories you mentioned, Starbucks and Sony, uh, you know, not just playing around, but creating genuine products and new services built on top of decentralized networks. Uh, I think that's extremely exciting and it just goes to show um, there's something real here and we're gonna see a lot more stories I'm sure like that of companies you'd never expect finding ways to leverage the power of this technology to benefit their businesses. You know, in terms of the, the digital yen, um, there is this debate raging in, in the crypto policy world right now about stable coins, versus central bank digital currencies. And uh, you know, I agree with you, I'm, I'm not sure exactly what the details are of what Japan is, is, uh, is, is deciding to trial here. And the CBDC development does tend to take a very long time, but this is an issue that we have to watch because there's no question money is becoming increasingly digital, paper cash is going away, and we have a choice whether we wanna have private money or if we want to put all of it under the control of central governments and central banks that are issuing and controlling it. So I think this is a really important narrative also for us to watch uh, as time goes on. 
Well, I think that's uh, that's right, and I agree with those points, uh, particularly uh, around the slow development time horizon of CDBDCs, but also the idea uh, that digital money is coming, programmable money is coming in one form or another. The question is really fundamentally who's going to control it, uh, what it looks like, what the bargain will be between privacy and security, all of these trade-offs that have to be uh, negotiated. But I wanted to get back uh, to the NFT points that you were making earlier. What's your broad big picture view of NFTs, where we are here in 2023? Uh, where do you see some opportunities? Where do you see some promise in that space? I think NFTs are one of the most exciting sectors within the industry right now. And I think we are just at the very beginning of understanding the power of that right. uh, format for storing data on a blockchain. You know, I think most people think of NFTs as just profile pictures, right? Because that's the first use case that became somewhat mainstream for NFTs. And I think that is really exciting. I think that digital artists have been underrated and have not had you know, the same opportunities to create businesses and succeed as physical artists, just because digital art until NFTs was infinitely copyable. So there was very little way for a digital artist to monetize their work. NFTs changed that in a really exciting yeah. way. And you know, maybe that's less compelling when it's a monkey picture uh, than it is when it's you know, some really exciting generative art. I think there has been some really exciting art that's been created, but I think that's sort of the first most obvious use case for an NFT. I think we're gonna go way did, beyond did, that. Meaning digital, did the digital art use case and the collection. Yes, exactly. I mean, it really, NFTs, I think, probably solve two key problems. The first is the sort of the infinite copy problem that you just uh, articulated. And the second, uh, I guess maybe it's not solving a problem so much as adding new functionality, which is the idea that you can have this, uh, essentially this revenue stream in perpetuity that can flow off a piece of digital artwork. I mean, we all know these stories, uh, you know, about Vincent van Gogh selling one painting or something and selling it for 25 francs. You know, the idea here uh, is that you can have an artist who may be struggling at a particular point early in their career. Uh, and then when that painting uh, or that digital art uh, construction begins to gain value, they can participate in perpetuity at a back-end revenue stream. That's something that should be never seen before in the history of, uh, of art. A pretty extraordinary claim, but I think it really is truly an innovative functionality that allows artists to monetize, own, uh, and have empowerment that they'd never had before uh, historically in this space. It's an entirely new way to do business that could right. not exist without a decentralized network like a public blockchain. So I think it's extremely exciting. I think it gets back, though, to the core promise of crypto and why we're all here, which is we got the internet wrong to start, or at least we didn't have the technology that we needed to create a true, fully-fledged digital economy. The problem was we could not own our own digital assets. They were either infinitely copyable or they had to be stored in a database controlled by some other central intermediary where they owned the asset and we just had access to it. And I think digital collectibles are the first and most obvious use case for us being able to own our own digital assets that are not fungible, like a cryptocurrency, something used for you know, payments or as a store of value. But there are so many other types of digital assets that we've been struggling for the last 10, 20, even 30 years of, of this sort of pre-blockchain internet era that created all kinds of problems that we couldn't own them ourselves. One example is our digital identities. Right now, our identities depend on tech giants or on you know, issuing credentials from trusted third-party intermediaries. This is a really serious problem that I think NFTs can tackle. And it's just one of many that I think will uh, rise to the forefront in the next you know, couple of years. Walk us through what some other examples of that might be. 
Um, sure. I think, you know, one is decentralizing domain name services, right? There's, there's also this problem, which is if you want to host a website, then you're trusting some central third party to be okay with whatever it is that you've decided to put online. And here in the Western world, that's usually not so much of a problem if you're in an authoritarian regime like Venezuela or Iran or even China, and you want to distribute information to communicate freely, that is an extremely difficult thing for you to do. And so decentralizing things like the sharing of information or you know, some of these Web3 enabled um, you know, platforms for blog posts, something like Mirror Protocol, for example, these are extremely powerful tools that are not just going to create new business models for folks in you know, developed economies. It's going to create new opportunities for people who are fighting for their freedom in authoritarian regimes to get their message out and coordinate in a way that they couldn't before. So I think this really has global humanitarian implications in addition to just economic ones here in the U.S. Yeah, it's an important point. We tend to look at this through the lens of the United States or through developed markets more generally. But obviously, one of the important promises of blockchain technology, decentralized technologies in general, uh, is the ability to essentially leapfrog decades or even centuries of an absence of infrastructure, for example, banking and financial infrastructure, uh, registration infrastructure, places where there are challenges with the banking system, challenges with the financial system, challenges with rule of law. It really is an incredibly powerful emerging market story. It, it really is. And I think right now, you know, one of the main topics of conversation in the world is this battle between ideologies of democracy versus authoritarianism. And to me, a public blockchain embodies the principles of a Western democracy, right? It's about returning power to the people. It's about having equal access, right? Equal opportunity, even if not equal outcome. It's about being inclusive and it's about not subjecting or subordinating individuals to the state. It's about giving individuals the power to transact outside of the control of an authoritarian or dictator who may not like what you're doing. That, at the end of the day, is what public blockchains are here for. And I think that's something that we have to, to, to talk about more with policymakers here in the US and in other Western democracies so they can understand we shouldn't be following the lead of China which is trying to ban public blockchains because they view them as a threat, we should be uh, taking advantage of the power of this new technology as we sort of fight that battle around the world. Jake, we've talked a bit about some of the risks here in the United States, regulatory risk uh, and an absence of legislation. Give us the bearish, Give excuse me, rather than the bearish case, give us the bullish case here uh, for where you see this country headed, what some of the opportunities could be at least in the next one, three, five years in terms of some of the opportunities that blockchain technology can provide for the US from an economic development perspective, particularly? There's a huge amount of opportunity, and I think it runs through maybe two different sources. One is it runs through Congress. And you know all of the discussion we've had so far about the difficulty with crypto regulation, all of that is being driven by regulators in agencies, right, in the administrative state, in the executive branch. But as you pointed out, they are not the ones who should be making decisions about how this new technology should be regulated. It's Congress that needs to do that. And Congress, you know, has just basically gotten started with its job here in 2023. We have a brand new Congress that was just sworn in last month. It took a while for us to get a Speaker of the House selected, and it's, it's taken a while for the committees to get set up. But Congress is now now, you know, 
at its job doing its work, coming up with solutions for these problems, even though the regulators are, are sort of refusing to do that. So I think there is a huge amount of opportunity for us in Congress. It's a challenge because we have a divided Congress that we have Republicans in charge in the House, we have Democrats in charge in the Senate. It's gonna be pretty hard for those two groups to get together on any you know, proposals, but that's what Congress is here for, to, to make deals. And so I'm optimistic about us getting some regulatory clarity that works for the industry um, especially on the issue of stable coins in the next couple of years. So that's that's one thing I think to, to watch and be hopeful for. Mm. A second is the pressure that will be applied to policymakers here in the US by constituents, the people who want to use this technology, right? Even uh, you know the folks who wanna get involved in you know Starbucks or Sony's uh, projects that you were mentioning earlier, or people who wanna play video games, which are increasingly going to have in-game assets represented as NFTs. I think those constituents are gonna speak loudly and say, we want to be able to use this technology and ultimately policymakers are responsive to that. And the other sort of category of pressure that we're starting to see is from other countries we're getting crypto regulation right, or at least doing much better than we are here in the US. What would be For some example, examples of that? Yeah, so I, you know, I think the best example right now is the European Union. And it's, it's kind of crazy uh, to you know, hear myself saying the Europeans are doing a much better job regulating crypto than we are here in America. But that is the situation. Uh, the EU has been pushing forward a comprehensive package to regulate a huge number uh, of players in the crypto industry called MICA, the Markets in Crypto Assets Regulation. And there are a lot of things that I'm sure we could you know, nitpick about MICA. It's certainly not perfect. And it's not you know, finished yet. We'll have to see what the implementation looks like. But but they made some really good decisions at the foundation of that, uh, that you know, uh, regulatory framework, specifically to focus on the centralized intermediaries in crypto and not mess around with the decentralized protocols at the heart of the ecosystem, which no one really understands how to regulate at this point. So I think the EU is showing some forbearance, some thoughtfulness, uh, some care and caution that here in the US we're not showing. And I think when, you know, when policymakers here start realizing we're getting outdone by Europe and we're following the Chinese model instead of you know, what's happening in, in the EU or in the UK or in some other places that seem to be getting this right, um, mm -hmm. I, I think that there's a lot of uh, you know, positive energy that will come out of that. Well, you know, right before you mentioned the pressure uh, and the opportunity in terms of the model being derived from foreign development of this legislation to attempt to support this technology, uh, you mentioned this idea here in the U.S. of the domestic constituency that digital assets, cryptocurrency, blockchain technologies have. Talk a little bit about what you're seeing in terms of Americans uh, who are passionate about this space speaking out. I think there's a study out there uh, that says something like one in three Americans has at some point invested in or traded cryptocurrencies, a sizable percentage of the U.S. population. Uh, give us a sense of what lawmakers are hearing from their constituents and how they're taking that into account uh, or not, as the case may be, in terms of their framework for providing new legislation. So crypto has a superpower, which is an extremely active community and a very dedicated grassroots. This is something that every industry in America wishes that they had. And many of them spend a lot of time trying to manufacture the appearance that they have a lot of people who really care. We don't have to do any of that, right? There are millions of Americans who, who 
care deeply about this technology, who understand how it can address many of the problems that they've experienced in their own lives, the concerns that they have about how the internet has developed and who controls it. And those people are very engaged politically, right? They are not shy about making their voices heard. And honestly, one of the most impactful things that we've experienced as we've you know, gone to Capitol Hill to lobby members of Congress on you know, improving a certain bill or you know, trying to push forward another bill or trying to you know, take out some problematic provision in a bill, one of the most important things we've seen is average Americans tweeting at their members of Congress. You right. would be shocked at how plugged in many of these members of Congress are to their Twitter accounts. And to see, you know, 10 tweets from a member of Congress in a given week, and nine of those tweets have to do with some other sort of esoteric policy issues, and they get maybe 10 or 20 likes. And then the 10th tweet is about crypto, and it gets a thousand likes and a hundred comments, right? This is the kind of thing that actually moves the needle in a way that would really surprise you. I think people in DC understand there is a very vocal group of people who care about this issue, and it is right. to their benefit to speak out in favor of innovation related to crypto and Web3. Well, that has to make you a bit optimistic about the, uh, you know, chance of getting some supportive legislation at some point in the future. Uh, we're going to get to viewer questions in just a moment, but first, for those watching on the Real Vision website, thank you. If you haven't signed up there yet, check it out at realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's the best way to access Real Vision content, and it's always free. Today, we've released the latest Rao Pal Adventures in Crypto. Rao spoke with Antoni Martin, co-founder of Layer 2 Blockchain Polygon, which we've talked about here on the show. Here's a snippet from that conversation. How does value accrue in a Layer 2 world? So Ethereum value is Metcalfe's law and a bunch of other ways of looking at it. But the Layer 2s are kind of renting block space from... Do we just have to think of these as entirely separate things? So, or are they interconnected? Does it accrue, to, you know, I just don't know whether the number of transactions, which you'll have a lot more than the Ethereum chain will have, whether that accrues to you, the Ethereum chain, or I don't know, how are you thinking about it? Yeah, he, here obviously, tokenomics is one of our challenges. And I think your point is, is a very valid one. In fact, uh, we are somehow thinking and thinking on, on what should be what we name Polygon 2.0 and possible to economics no? uh, to, to somehow cre create this whole ecosystem. After the discussions that we have had, I mean, basically layer two, each user, although 0.04, a negligible price, a residual price will pay for transactions. Okay, that's clear. Then this price, what happens? That with this price, more people want to become a validator, no? Like in Ethereum, it's very similar, no? Then more people wants to stake a certain amount, in the case of Ethereum, 32 Ethers, in the case of, of Matic, we don't have a minimum, but a certain amount of Matic, no? And they will receive a yield uh, that is, is related with the number of transactions uh, according, according to that. What happens? that if if there is more demand because there are more transactions and at the same time more people wants to become a validator more people wants to stake tokens no then with these two forces this is what will help to increase the value of of the of the token jake you and i were talking a little bit off camera while the clip was playing about the so-called choke point 2.0 thesis tell us a little bit about what that means uh, and why it may have some significance 
Sure. So I mentioned earlier that one of the messages coming out of the White House is to protect the banking system from risk uh, related to the crypto asset sector. And there's sort of two pieces of this. The first, the banking regulators have been very public and very clear about, which is they do not want national banks or state member banks, members of the Federal Reserve, engaging as a principal in crypto asset services, meaning they don't want banks to be offering their own crypto products or services, whether that's a lending or staking or, or those, types of, uh, those types of products. Also, they've been very clear that they do not want banks issuing their own stable coins. So that we know from the banks. There's a second piece to it, though, which is more speculation than it is clear, although there has been a lot of speculation and rumors about it, which is this idea of quote unquote, Operation Choke Point 2.0. The original Operation Choke Point was a somewhat covert effort by the banks to de-platform or to de-bank disfavored industries. And a lot of this actually happened uh, to deal with weapons manufacturers, right? Gun dealers, about 10 years or so, where those companies were just losing their bank accounts with no explanation. And the idea was the banking regulators were asserting their political views on the banking system. And there's some concern now that there are messages being sent behind closed doors from the Fed, from the FDIC, maybe also from the OCC, that regulated banks should be looking at their customer list, finding crypto companies, and then closing their accounts simply as an attack on the industry. Uh, this is something we're watching very closely because if that is happening, it would be devastating for the industry, right? No company can operate in the US without having access to the banking system, a bank account to pay salaries from. Um, we haven't, though, heard yet about any companies that have had accounts closed just because they're involved in crypto. Um, I would put out a call to this audience if you hear about something like that, an account being closed just because a company is involved in crypto, please get in touch with me because I would love to know about that. Yeah, important point to make there. It's still an open question. Hey, everyone, we're going to take another quick break and hear a word from our partners. We'll be right back to the Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Jake, let's jump in. We've got a lot of questions, a lot of questions actually flowing to us uh, from this show. First one comes from Eddie B on the Real Vision website. Is there any discussion about the SEC going after level two cryptos? I think they're talking about layer two uh, scaling solutions here. Uh, any thoughts on layer twos and SEC? I haven't heard anything about the SEC, uh, you know, thinking about investigating or enforcing against the layer twos. Um, my assumption is if that were happening, the argument would be quite similar to an argument the SEC would make about a layer one, that the native token of the layer two is for some reason an investment contract under the Howey test. Um, I just haven't heard any rumors about that. And it seems like the SEC has, uh, you know, already bitten off much more than it can chew, both in enforcement and rulemaking. So um, there's nothing that I see coming down the pipe, uh, you know, immediately about that. Here's a follow-up question from Eddie B, and it's a very popular one here on Real Vision. Any ideas where the XRP case is heading as far as a settlement is concerned? Uh, I don't know if there is going to be a settlement, we should importantly point out, uh, but what are your thoughts? 
I, so I can only speculate, um, and I've seen the same public reports. My guess is there's not a settlement coming. Um, I, I think that because uh, Ripple doesn't seem to want to settle. They seem to want to fight. And I think the SEC feels exactly the same way. Uh, at this point, the motion for summary judgment has been fully briefed in front of the district court. We're just waiting for the district court to decide on you know, whether and to what extent uh, the SEC has made enough allegations uh, that XRP is a security or, or whether the court feels it can already resolve that issue. Um, maybe there will be a settlement at some point after we see an order on summary judgment. I do not think that this case ends in the district court. Uh, I think Ripple is prepared to fight this all the way. And I think if the SEC were to get an unfavorable decision from the judge, they'll probably want to do the same thing. So I think, um, you know, sadly, for, for better or worse, uh, we're going to keep talking about XRP and its security status for a long time to come. What does that mean all the way? Does that mean this could go to the Supreme Court? I think it could. And, you know, Ripple has been very explicit that they view this case as the right vehicle for the Supreme Court to revise the Howey test or to come up with an entirely new test. And, mm. you know, I, that's certainly a long road and there's no way to know uh, sort of how long it would take to get there or whether this is the right vehicle. But Ripple has said all the right things about wanting to take this all the way. Um, and, and for what it's worth, I do think that this issue has to go to the Supreme Court. I mm. do not think that the SEC can establish what I think is a completely inappropriate interpretation of the Howey test just by getting one district court order after another. These orders are not binding precedent. Uh, they are simply the decision of one trial judge in one particular case. And until we get case law from the circuit courts and ultimately from the Supreme Court, this question of what assets are or are not securities is going to remain unsolved. Yeah, important to point out, happily for our audience, unlike me, you are in fact an attorney, so you have uh, the background to actually explain these uh, precedents from a legal perspective. Uh, here's one that comes to us from YouTube. It's from Mr. Wright. Uh, it seems that the SEC is going scorched earth on the U.S. crypto market. Why? Well, first of all, there's a presupposition in that question. Do you agree uh, that SEC is going, quote, scorched earth on U.S. crypto market? Uh, I do agree. I, I think there's no other way to characterize what they've been doing, which is getting more aggressive in filing enforcement actions against a wider range, uh, you know, array of, of industry players for a wider number of alleged violations, while at the same time proposing rules that would make it difficult, if not impossible, for many crypto companies to exist in the United States or for many of these digital assets to have a robust secondary market here. So I, I think it's entirely fair to say that. Uh, my colleague, Kristen Smith, who's the CEO at the Blockchain Association, and I, I think was on, uh, on this program with you uh, before, Ash, called this a crypto carpet bombing uh, when speaking to the Wall Street Journal. And I think that's a fair way to describe it. Why is this happening? Um, I think there's two answers to that. One is 2022 really was a very damaging year for crypto's reputation, ending with the collapse of FTX, which I, I cannot understate, uh, or, or rather I can't overstate how damaging the entire FTX saga was for crypto's yeah. credibility and its standing in Washington. So I think those who were already skeptical of crypto feel emboldened now. They feel like they've always wanted to attack the industry and now they have the political runway to do it. Um, the second issue is, as I said before, simply the peculiar unique views of the chair of the SEC who really gets to decide what is that commission going to do with respect to the industry. If he had different views or if someone else was in that job, 
the entire landscape might look different, but we're stuck with Chair Gensler and he's very set, it seems, in his view of the crypto industry, which is uh, it either should not exist in the United States or it should exist in some regulated form that restricts it to such a degree that it basically just looks like the traditional financial system. Well, you know, two great phrases. Uh, the first coming from your colleague, uh, Kristen Smith. I heard uh, at least, I think, three people say that phrase to me, carpet bombing uh, of the crypto industry. It was something that really did catch a sort of an emotional chord, uh, I think, with people in the space. And the other, uh, another attorney uh, now practicing uh, journalism, Matt Levine, came up with this thesis, which he applies uh, to this sort of framework, what we're seeing in terms of the the impact we've seen post FTX, which is this idea of legal realism, this sort of broader philosophical concept in law that effectively uh, courts uh, react in response uh, to actual situations on the ground and they tailor their response as a consequence of what they see the needs uh, being rather than necessarily the statutes that have been written. Uh, the idea here being that there's been such damage done to the credibility of the crypto space by FTX that we're seeing this almost inevitable backlash uh, to it in, uh, in regulatory response and also potentially in the courts. Can you give a response to that? How do you feel that this may in fact play out? Um, you know, I think that we're stuck with the status quo for a fair amount of time going forward. As I said, the SEC will surely continue its attack, but it cannot remake the law by bringing one enforcement action after another. And it cannot enact new rules without statutory authority. In other words, without an act of Congress. And until Congress decides who the right regulator is for this space, we're gonna be stuck with the status quo of disagreeing as a matter of law with the SEC and having to fight it out in the courts. I think one thing that folks should watch for is the industry to get more aggressive in trying to litigate these issues. You know, there are three branches of federal government. Policy gets made in all three of them. We've spent a lot of time focusing on the executive branch and on the legislature. We've spent less time focusing on the judiciary where the law is interpreted. And I think the, the growing view among the industry is judges will not agree with the SEC's interpretation of the law. And the problem has been the SEC has been allowed to bring its own cases. This is how enforcement works. The SEC decides where to bring its own cases. And they've chosen venues. In other words, they've chosen federal courts where they know the law is favorable to them. It's not that hard for the SEC to win one of these enforcement actions in the Southern District of New York. There's a reason they don't bring these suits in, for example, the Eastern District of Texas, which would certainly disagree with their perspective. And I think that's what we should be looking out for now mm. is the industry to go on offense, to start bringing cases uh, in the Fifth Circuit, in the Sixth Circuit, in the Eleventh Circuit. We've already seen this in other contexts. Uh, Coin Center has brought some challenges to the Treasury Department and to OFAC. Uh, so has Coinbase. They funded a lawsuit that was brought in Texas over the tornado cash issue. I think we should should expect that uh, strategy to expand, uh, to, well, to try to change policy through the courts and not just through Congress and through the administrative state. Well, that gets back to your point earlier that there's almost an inevitability of this going to the Supreme Court. You mentioned the Eastern District of Texas. I think there's a fair amount of jurisprudence there uh, around oil and gas law, for example, uh, and obviously, as you say, a more favorable jurisdiction. But ultimately, it sounds uh, like, in your view, this is going to be uh, this is going to go through the appellate process. It's ultimately going to land on the docket of the U.S. Supreme Court, where we can get some uh, hopefully precedent-setting clarity. I just want to do one final question here. Uh, interesting, we go from uh, Mr. Right on YouTube to wrong again on YouTube. I guess two sides of the same coin. Uh, and this question uh, in many ways asks about the the view of 
uh, of what you what your view is about what the the SEC reaction from a slightly different angle. And the question here is, do you think that regulators have exceeded their mandate and their authority uh, in their actions? Yes, unequivocally, I think that they have. And there are so many different examples that I can give you of, of uh, where we see them doing that. I think the best and most obvious is how the SEC has decided to interpret the term investment contract, which is mm. the last time Congress decided what the definition of a security was. That's what the, the Congress said. And investment That's 1950s Vincians. Yeah. The Howey test dates the 1950s. Is that right? The uh, Howey test was in the middle of the 40s, and that was the Supreme Court interpreting what investment contract means. The term investment contract comes from Congress in the 1933 Act. So we are going back all the way to the beginning of the securities laws to derive that term. And what the so, current so 90 years versus 80 years uh, ago in terms of the original statute and then the interpretation uh, 10 years or so about later. Right. Crypto was not on the minds of, of anyone at either of those times, uh, of course. Um, and, and what the SEC has done in just the last, I would say, five or, or six years is they've taken that term investment contract, and then they've interpreted it so broadly that it captures essentially any asset with a market price and any commercial service where there's money changing hands or some expectation of profit on either side of the arrangement. That's basically Chris, every Chris commercial Perkins yesterday said it captures everything except for like, I think, movie tickets and onions, uh, which I thought was interesting. I didn't have a chance to follow up and ask why those two commodities were excluded. Uh, Jake, we've only got about a minute left here, but I wanted to give you a chance to talk about your final thoughts, key takeaways that you'd like to leave our audience with. Big picture, what would you like to leave them with? You know, I think the only thing uh, to leave folks with is a sense of optimism. You know, the, the picture looks a little bit grim right now, um, but I, I think there is a lot of reason for hope and optimism going forward. Crypto isn't going anywhere. This is a world-changing technology, and the only question is how long it will take policymakers in the United States to understand what that opportunity is and what the opportunity cost will be of cutting ourselves out of this growing ecosystem. Hmm. This technology is going to get built somewhere, and we want the technology to be built here in the United States. We want those jobs to cre be created here. We want this technology to reflect our principles. In the long term, I have no doubt that we will get there and crypto will have a fundamental impact on the financial system and the way that we interact in the digital economy that will happen in the United States. It might be a little bit rocky, uh, you know, the, the uh, path from here to there, but I would say have no fear. Don't get too overwhelmed by the day-to-day -day price action, although it is, you know, certainly fun and important to watch um, and, you know, strap in for an exciting time. Hey, Jake, that's so well said, and I know many of our viewers and listeners agree with you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Really a pleasure to have you with us again. Hope you can come back and continue having this conversation uh, once more. I would love to, Ash. Thanks again. This was really fun. Thanks for coming. For those of you watching on YouTube, like and subscribe and hit the notification bell. That way you always stay up to date with the latest crypto news and analysis. If you're not a Real Vision subscriber yet, don't forget it's free. Head over to realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's realvision.com forward slash crypto. That's it for today. We're off for President's Day on Monday here in the U.S. We'll be back on Tuesday. The guests next week include Hasib Karishi, uh, Michael Von Pop, and Jimmy Song. See you at 9 a.m. Pacific, noon Eastern, 5 p.m. London time live on Real Vision Crypto Daily Briefing. Have a great long weekend, everybody. Ooh.